Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Ah, that's actually dogs, uh. I have to use language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Opening Irish Times second captain's football podcast of the week. You can only push a man so far, Kennedy, before he comes out fighting. Really? Yep. Uh, it depends on the man, though. Brendan Rodgers is the man in this case. Oh, yeah? He's been backed into a corner, and he ain't taking it anymore. He's emerged in a whirl of fists. <laughs> yeah, verbal fists. Oh, yeah. Which is the Brendan Rodgers way. Not a violent man, I wouldn't say, Brendan Rodgers. Uh, Probably not right to speculate on whether somebody is violent or not, anyway. I never had a crossword with him, said Stephen Jarrett. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say he was... I don't know if they grappled, either. I, I don't know if, it was, if they settled their differences with, you know, a bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whatever. <laughs> just, just wordless concentration, you know. Mano a mano, you know, body to body, you know, whose will is the stronger. I mean, that's well, if you're going to do that, why not just have a staring match? Um, Literally wait to see who blinks first. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, why bother with the Brazilian Steve, jiu-jitsu? I, I mean, know, eye contact, I'm not sure. Well, the ultimate battle, is, uh, Stephen Gerrard would definitely lose that because he's not an eye contact man. No. I mean, he refuses to make eye contact with El Hadjouf and El Hadjouf decides he's being racially abused by Gerrard. That was that was what El Hadjouf said. Pr- pretty ludicrous. I think we I think we managed to skip over that views. at the time. No, I, no, I don't think so. Now there has been a frenzy to get me out of here," said Rogers after the win against Aston Villa. "I'm the same guy who nearly won us the league, but better." Yeah. <laughs> better. We'll get into the report on sport, and you can have a go at this. Now you hear that sentence that you just said, Owen. Repeat it there, please. The second one. Yeah. I am the I am the guy. I am the same guy who nearly won us the league. I'm the same guy but who better. nearly won us the league. Who does that remind you of? Who does that particular sentence construction remind you of? Owen? The same guy who nearly won us the league. I can... I mean, we were talking about him only last week. Is, is he a football figure? Yes. Football figure. First language, not Arsene English. Wenger? However, with the great command of it. Arsene Wenger? Louis van Gaal? Louis van Gaal probably doesn't have us. You, you literally don't listen to a word I say anymore, Owen. That's That's what's happened here. Oh, who are we talking about? We're talking about Mourinho. Jose Mourinho. Come on. <laughs> We're talking about Jose That's Mourinho. Kieran Murphy's only uh, interjection here. <laughs> Kieran Murphy is furiously reading the Henry Sheffern autobiography in the background for anyone who's interested in their second show today. Um, That's it's because a, King Henry. King Henry. King Henry, as he loves to be called, as people <laughs> reading the book will find out. He doesn't love being called King Henry. Henry Sheffern is in studio today, so that's going to be our, our other show. It's going to be a large part of our other show. Um, Jose, so we'll, 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 leave, we'll leave Murph to that again and we'll barrel on here. So Jose Mourinho um, spent a lot of time in the last little while talking about, I won this, I won that, I won the title, I won the title three times here, um, you know, etc., etc. Now we have Brendan Rodgers saying, I nearly won the title, uh, which isn't quite as good as actually winning it. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it, what struck me, though, was the, was the actual construction of that sentence. I... Yeah, uh, I'm the guy who nearly won the league. Are you though? Are you really that guy? Yeah. I mean, people people are, um, you know, divided in terms of how much credit to assign Brendan Rodgers, uh, and you know, for that uh, almost winning the title, and how much credit to assign certain other people who were at the club at the time and maybe aren't at the club anymore. Maybe they've maybe they've gone on to continued success elsewhere. Well, I've always found that analysis a little bit unfair on Rodgers because 
if you're saying a manager shouldn't get credit because the team is reliant on one brilliant player, well, should Pep Guardiola be getting all the credit he got for his time in Barcelona? Well, Jose Mourinho doesn't get any credit for <laughs> No, it. exactly. Yeah. not. And uh, do the Real Madrid managers don't really get much credit. Not as though they've won that much stuff. You could argue that Rodgers did very well to almost win the league for them, given that he only had one player of that calibre. Or you could, like Steven Gerrard, argue that they should have won the league, and uh, maybe they would have if Rodgers hadn't cocked it up. Is that what he said? Pretty much. I mean, there's a few interesting things. I, I read Steven Gerrard's book. It's actually quite good. Well, I mean, it's it's good in the sense that it's it will leave you feeling sad, but at the same time, it's a kind of a sadness of... A sadness... Not, not like a... Not a not a depressing sadness. More of a kind of beautiful sadness. You know? Mm. You're like... The beautiful sadness of Stephen Jones. You're wallowing in misery. <laughs> Essentially what you're doing. But like... I mean, Jared, we know that Jared isn't... As his father says to him at one point in the book, you're not exactly the happiest person. <laughs> um, so we know that. Uh, but the book is fairly... It, it tends to dwell on the on the, uh, on the the sad things that happened. And, of course, there's no shortage of those. It contains this unbelievably graphic account of his injury problems, um, which were... I mean, I say graphic because I've never... I don't think I've ever read the word puss quite so many times in a book. Uh, now, I mean, I don't, I've never... I never studied medicine. It could be that there are medical textbooks out there which contained the word puss more often than Stephen Jarrett's mo- most recent autobiography. But I'm not sure. Um, I think even those dry medical textbooks might start looking for other words. <laughs> but Jared, it's almost this hypnotic repetition of that word puss. And they're going in search of the puss chamber. It's in there somewhere. Somewhere behind the balls, he instructs the... Uh, he instructs the, his, the physios, we can't seem to find anything. They're, they're palpating. They're, they're going in search of this. He's like, I don't know what's going on here. I feel like my pelvis is coming apart. Eventually, they, f- they find the rogue sack of pus. It's buried up there. It's, it's driving his pelvic bones apart. They, they drain it out. Oh, such a relief. But then, anyway, he's, almost immediately after that, once he's worked his way back into the team, he's, he's wandering around and, and uh, his ankle has got a kind of a dull throb. I'm sorry, by the way, you're distracting Murph from the Shefflin book here with all this, all this talk. <laughs> no, he's... I'm it's sure. too graphic from Stephen his, a, his ankle has got a kind of a dull throb and, he's, and he's, he says, no problem, I'm not going to say anything about that because I am the captain of this football club and I want to get out there and play because I live to be on the field. And he's walking out there, and suddenly the, the physio, who's like his best mate, uh, Chris, the physio, Chris Morgan, I'm pretty sure his name is, uh, is saying, Stevie, uh, could I, you know, could we maybe have a take a look at that ankle? And it turns out that his ankle is basically about to come off. He's got an infection in his ankle, which, if he goes out to play this game, I think it's against West Brom, there's a pretty good chance that his ankle is going to shear clean off. On this occasion, the pus takes eight minutes to drain from the wound when it's lanced by the surgeon. Oh. Eight minutes worth in a steady stream. That is a hell of a lot of pus. It certainly is. It certainly is. These are the. This is the kind of. These are the moments. These are the moments that define the career of a great footballer. Anyway, um, only some of the book is about this uh, struggle against injury and infection. Uh, there is also. Uh, I mean. You know, a lot of it is to do the, the kind of slip his own personal battle battle against if, if what sounds like you know a kind of a returning you know kind of depressive, uh, if not uh, illness, then certainly temperament. Um, you know, which he which is getting him down over and over and over again, and ultimately his life's work crumbles in the famous moment against Chelsea, which is which is obviously disappointing. And then there's the then there's the whole kind of f- almost farcical final season, in which everyone is singing about this, you know, which obviously he really didn't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't like this at all, and it kind of culminates in the end with this losing six one to Stoke, and it's just like, oh my god, you know, what can I do? And it kind of it kind of ends like in a, almost an uppy way. It's almost like he sort of he can finally there's a line into something about the you know i uh, uh, you know after he he'd gone like uh, he started thinking about these things that he had done like these kind of good days that he'd had you know and it felt as though they belonged to me again like it was kind of almost okay to sort of think about 
at, you know, Istanbul or the FA Cup final that he played really well in because it wasn't like, because he wasn't playing for them anymore, it was kind of like, oh, you know, I can now kind of look back on my life. Yeah, he was nearly released from the pressure of having to try to land the league title, which I think is the central part of it. Yeah, he's released from a lot lot of pressure. I mean, he talks about, and and maybe, you know, we're going to be talking about Brendan Rodgers' current situation with Jonathan Wilson in, in a bit. And, and the kind of paranoid tone of what he had to say over the weekend. Oh, they're out to get me. Who? Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, but like being Liverpool, being a, a big star at Liverpool does seem to be quite different. I mean, Jared is quite open. He's like, I literally couldn't go into town from the time I was 20. You know, that was it. I, it, was, it was over for me. I can't do that. Like he'd drive around at night, go to like petrol stations and stuff if he needed to pick stuff up. You know, I mean, what can you get in like mace? I was going to say, it couldn't be the healthiest of diets then. Yeah, if you're yeah. doing all your grocery shopping. I guess he was in, eating a lot of <laughs> cereal bars. And, a lot of instant coffee there. Um, milk that's just about to go off. He was an expert in all types of cereal bars. Um, but you know, he, it's a, this kind of uh, this kind of claustrophobia. You know, it's not it's not like um, you talk you hear about some other cities. Oh, the people will you, you'll go out and you can just sit there having a coffee. No one pays any attention. They to say you. that about Dublin. I'm not sure how true it is. <laughs> I don't know if it you is do hear true. it sometimes. You know, celebrities can just go about their daily life. But you know, it couldn't couldn't really happen uh, for. But you know, I mean, it, it's there is a sort of a sense of like, wow, I'm reading really a golfish bowl here. You know what I mean? Um, which I think maybe does melt the heads of the managers a little bit. Anyway, we're we're going to talk a bit more about about Rogers with with Jonathan. So we, there's other stuff to talk about. Um, there was obviously Alex Ferguson's book as well, which I I've read most of at this stage. Have you finally been won over by it? No. <laughs> Not at all, no. It's, it's just, I haven't heard any good reviews on this one. Really. At Manchester United, we were all infected with a virus. It was called... Winning. Winning! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was called winning. The only cure? More victories. More victories. It, he didn't actually say this, did he? He didn't say oh, the only cure is more victories. But he but did he, say the rest he of He did it. say the oh. virus part. And there's also a, a weird, what's called an epilogue. But I mean, an epilogue to me is like... You know, a last chapter which isn't really related to the foregoing, but you know, has some kind of t- tangential, you know, relevance or like is is completing rounding out the story in some way. Saying, "Oh, you know, I enjoy a good epilogue." Thing. I have to say, yeah, yeah, you would. This epilogue, however, is is not written by us, for example, but by his his ghostwriter or co-writer, Michael Moritz. I'm thinking, why am I reading this? I've have, I've have less than zero interest in in Michael. I, I respect what Michael Moritz has achieved as a. Uh, as a journalist, uh, he worked for Time magazine. He became a venture capitalist. He's been involved with some of the giants of the tech industry since their inception. Now, giants such as Google, Ooh. Cisco, wow. Um, I don't know, Apple, Facebook. He says, in my opinion, there are only a few genuine giants, and then they said a few of these. And I'm thinking, why am I reading this? <laughs> what is this? What is this in, doing in this Alex Ferguson book? Yeah. You know, he's talking about. How venture capital is like football, you know. There are only a few tech firms that managed to grow to to become the Manchester Uniteds, the Barcelonas, the Bayern Munichs of that of that industry. And I'm thinking, it's just come on. How did Ferguson not veto this? Did Ferguson know this was going to be appearing in his book? I don't think the old Alex Ferguson would have gone along with that. No. But look, um, there you go. That's uh, so. Don't don't I, buy Ferguson's book for Christmas. Do potentially. Ah, why did I mention the c word? Forget about that. The C, the C word. Christmas. Oh, Christmas. Yeah. I mean, I've mentioned it twice and you've mentioned it, so let's uh, forget what I just said there. Let's okay. move, move it along. Of the two, I would say Gerard's is, is better, uh, although it is also a little bit more grim. It's not like Alex Ferguson is, is dwelling on the downsides. Yeah. He's not that kind of person. There, uh, sorry, there is one slightly interesting part where he mentions the fact that essentially from the day he joined Manchester United until the day he retired, he didn't really see his family. <laughs> and he does and remember that this is a man who although it's not, it's not it's not a phrase I ever remember him using but people used to say it about him all the time and some of the players involved used to say it about him all the time he's a father figure he's like a father figure you know what I mean and he kind of makes a reference I mean we're talking about half a page to the fact that one of the things that he does appreciate more now the older he gets and the more he looks back on his life is just how little trouble Cathy made over the fact that he was never home. Lady Cathy. Lady Cathy. Um, she raised their three sons, and he was never made to feel as though 
he w- he was never made to feel guilty about the fact that he was never there. He was allowed to be selfish, to concentrate on his obsession, because in his view, uh, to be a super successful person, you can't have a balanced life. It's out of the, it's out of the question. I mean, you, how can you give everything to... You know, you're so that's interesting. That should be a couple of chapters right there. Yeah. If you are, especially in the context of what he's talking about, this leadership thing. I mean, a massive part of this is that, well, actually, a lot of these great leaders have big trouble in their personal lives and marriages can break down. I'm saying Ferguson's uh, had that, but marriages can break down and kids can feel estranged. These are the kind of uh, sacrifices sometimes these great leaders feel they have to make and maybe they, maybe they don't even, but that's, mm. that, that's a good insight. But you're saying that's only, what, half a page? Well, it's not. It's, I mean, he mentions it, but he says, oh, it was fine. We never had any problems yeah, in that yeah, respect. That's... And you're thinking, wow. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, didn't, see the, didn't see the family for 27 years. Uh Proud of proud of them though, and eleven wonderful grandchildren. You know, so it's, I mean, that 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 is sort of interesting. But it's not as though he really goes into it. Actually, it's funny. Like he'd be seeing more of his grandchildren than he would have of his children at the same uh, age. at the same age. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what else was going on? Well, Chelsea had a, had another disappointing result, but it's one of those disappointing results which is achieved in a in a good way uh, in terms of coming back from two down, and maybe they could have won the match. It was close. Um, uh, Mourinho cracked the whip a little bit uh, on the players. In the first half, from 0 to 10, we were minus 1. It was that bad. We were so poor. So bad. At halftime, I said I was sorry. I only had three subs. I wanted to change six. Um, this seems to have worked. Uh, well, I mean, they, they, they were 1-0 down at halftime, then went 2-0 down, but then came back. Um, Ramirez and William moved the game. They brought more intensity, much more dynamic. There are substitutes that he brought on, of course. Uh so, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 still a bad result. John Terry not in the team again, uh, although Zuma is the man who's kind of taken his place. Uh, and there's lots to say, Zuma. He talks to the French media and he speaks quite openly. Oh, I love these. One of these interviews that somehow finds its way getting back into the English media mm. via translation. He'll start, He's going to stop doing them in the next <laughs> 10 days. But it's not just him. A lot of players <laughs> seem to. But he... he um, uh, he last week it was oh we know what Diego Costa is like he likes to cheat a lot and uh, everyone said what you said Diego Costa cheats what do you mean and he was like oh no I didn't read that no I mean I, I meant he you know he kind of plays on the edge uh, this uh, this week he's talking about John Terry imagine how this, these comments make John Terry feel the legend is still there says Zuma in the next few matches he'll play that's for sure he's a bit like my teacher when I was younger he was a great example to me. The fact I'm playing with him is an honour. He talks a lot. He is a good teacher. Um, uh, he, When he's not happy, you know about it at training. He shouts a lot. Mentally, he's taught me a lot. He really hates losing. I know he expects a lot from me. Uh, this is... Uh, That's all fine. No, what's wrong, what's wrong with me? Teacher. Uh, maybe. Yeah. It's... He's taken his place in the team. He really hates losing. Does he hate losing his place? I'd say he probably does. I wouldn't say Terry would. I'd say Terry quite like being called a teacher. You think? Yeah. I think so. Maybe. Suppose if he's if the if the boy is learning, mm. the boy's learning from him. That it's not it's not learning too much. But uh, the other I- interview about Chelsea uh, was given by Andre Schürrle. Andre Schürrle, um, the Wolfsburg player involved in uh, Champions League football, Champions League this week, uh, and talking to the Times, he said I had a good time at Chelsea and I was accepted in the team. So it's difficult to explain why I left. Uh, my performances were good, but there was a time in my second season when I felt I didn't have the manager's trust anymore and didn't play many matches from the start. It was difficult to leave, but when I had the chance to come back to Germany to join an awesome club like Wolfsburg, I felt it was a good decision. I don't know why Mourinho didn't trust me. It all felt a bit weird to me. I started a few games, was on the bench for a few, then started some more. I was up and down the whole time. I didn't get any consistency from the manager, so I find it hard to produce my best. That's probably the biggest reason I wanted to leave. Uh, he does also say, I had a lot of good talks with the manager and respect him a lot. He told me to my face what he wanted me to do. I had some good games, but there was often an ordinary game soon afterwards. It was hard because I felt like I was training well and working hard, but I wasn't getting in the team. It was always up and down. It's just such a Chelsea story. It's the story of every Chelsea winger under Jose Mourinho. Mm. Every kind of Chelsea winger or inside forward, with the obvious and glorious example, uh, exception, I should say, of Eden Hazard. Um, every single other man who's played in that position for Jose Mourinho's Chelsea has felt this way. And you, st- oh, I don't know, just start to worry about Eden Hazard as well. Well, he's not. He's he's kind of Sherlockizing this season so far, isn't mm. he? I think I think Hazard will. You know, Hazard is 
But these other no. guys were all great players. I mean, Aaron Robin was a great yeah. player. Damien Duff was a fantastic player yeah. at the time that he left Chelsea. Um, where are we? Okay, well, the, the other bit that was the other big thing. Um, the other big thing was uh, Manchester City getting absolutely smashed out of it by Tottenham, yeah. and suddenly, uh, having made this amazing start, and everyone else starting badly, City are not even top of the league anymore. That's Manchester United. Manchester United, who out of nowhere suddenly look like probably the favourites for the league title. I mean, if we were thinking when we were talking about this at the start of the season, Manchester United going into the new season looks as though it's going to be Romero in goal. Looks as though it's going to be Rooney up front. That doesn't sound very good. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, Rooney probably is going to have a couple of good spells in the season, but does he look like he's capable of winning a title for you? Well, he he does if he's got surrounded by good players well it's true but you know the the fear was a few weeks before the season started that it was all going to be on Rooney he was literally going to be the only striker and uh, of course you're not going to win it like that but then you know Marshall's obviously made a, a pretty big impact so far see players like Mata as well have been very good for them yeah. and maybe hasn't been noticed because Mata signed at the worst possible time yeah it, it, it was a lot of reliance on him. Nothing was happening in that season, and still he was pretty good, and uh, not bad last. And he seems to be playing well again. So they, 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 you do forget about the talent of some of these guys who are in there uh, outside of this room. Yeah, I mean, Mata has scored a phenomenal number of goals, really, considering his. I mean, he's been very, very productive for them. Mm. Um, he has been. It, it was a bad decision. It was a bad decision by Mourinho. Jose Mourinho. Another bad decision. Um, I mean, we we mentioned that the other day. Uh, him and him and De Bruyne, both of them again scoring over the weekend for the Manchester clubs. Um, obviously, De Bruyne is, uh, was cancelled out by the goal that he gave away to Eric Dyer, and then the fact that City lost four one, he needed to score another hat trick to get them a point there. Um, but um, Pellegrini suddenly embattled, you know, talking about Lee, where are the leaders? Where are the leaders in this squad? Um, it's not about leaders; it's about two set pieces. Uh, says Pellegrini. But, you know, what it is about, really, is the return of this inconsistent Manchester City that everybody could remember from last season. This team, full of good players, not all of whom played well every week. You know, full of older players who maybe sometimes looked a little short of energy, who were always likely to concede goals, um, and, and who couldn't rely on Sergio Aguero to be fit. I mean, if Sergio Aguero is fully fit, he's probably going to score in the game. You're probably going to win the game, but he's not most of the time. This is the problem, yeah. and it's got and it's and it's and it's a problem again. So, um, yeah, I mean, at the moment with Manchester United, instead of Romero and Rooney, it's going to be David De Gea and Anthony Martial. Mm-hmm. That makes a big difference. And I mean, you saw Martial; he didn't actually manage to score against Sunderland. Sunderland team, everyone's going to beat. But look at the way that Anthony Martial sets up Memphis Depay for his one-on-one. Memphis Depay doesn't finish it off quite as coolly as Marshall would have done. He puts it straight at the keeper. But what's interesting about it is he's running with the ball and the, pa- the timing of the pass. The timing of the pass, which the defender can't read, suddenly phew, straight out into the path of Depay, perfectly for him. He should score. It's kind of it's frightening what he's already doing at this <laughs> I like the way you're fe- feeding more of the hype of Anthony Marshall. Anyone who listens to this podcast is... Well, why shouldn't I feed the hype of Anthony Marshall? I know, this is... Uh... Is true. I believe I will feed more of the hype of Anthony Marshall. That is, I believe I will continue. The end of Kennedy's report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know what happened? When John was young. Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Our Jonathan Wilson is ready to talk, Jonathan, about Brendan Rogers. We've been chatting a little bit about this so far. He's come out fighting his court. Before we get to the content, actually, of what he said... Just the act of saying this, the decision, what do you make of his decision to come out and, I guess, fight his corner like this? I mean, it's not in two minds about that. Like, so on the one hand, you, you sort of think, well, 
if he'd just talked about the game, if he just talked about Sturge being back and how well Lucas had played, then others would have made his case for him. And so I think he has a tendency at times to overthink things, to talk too much in press conferences. So at first I sort of thought, well, is this another another example of that, that he, he's, he's sort of um, distracted from the issue of Liverpool winning a game and Sturridge being back to, to focus on himself? But then I actually thought, well, maybe this is quite a clever political move, that um, the derby coming up next week, so you know that loads of former Liverpool players are going to be dragged out to talk about that. And if he actually feels there is some some conspiracy or you know uh, a general feeling among former Liverpool players that he's not right for the job. Maybe this isn't a bad way to sort of get the first blow in, a way of maybe making them think twice about about criticising him, um, you know, to, to show that he, he is willing to, to hit back and maybe it slightly draws the sting from any criticism he gets because you know he sort of preempted it. Do you think, because, I mean, Jared Houllier was the previous Liverpool manager who had a lot to say about former Liverpool players and what they had to say in the media. And I don't think it ever did him any favours, this sort of image of him uh, kind of uh, wandering around an airport departures lounge with a stack of newspapers, uh, looking around with angry eyes at anyone who, who he thought might be criticising him. I mean, the, you know, it, it kind of stokes a mood of paranoia, which doesn't necessarily lead to the criticism, um, you know, being kind of turned down. But oftentimes it actually gets worse. Yeah, that's that's also true, and that is the danger. Um, and, and I don't think it's just Joe Lillier who uh, has suffered from that that paranoia. You know, the Liverpool job seems a particularly paranoic place. I think you know, Roy Hodgson suffered from that. That he, I think, he always felt like he was treated as an outsider. Uh, I think even Rafa Benitez, in a slightly different way, you know, the, the the facts rant was was based in this sort of paranoia about. Yeah, Mourinho and the Southern-based media, and okay, it wasn't former players necessarily, but the, the sense that they're all out to get him. So there, there is something about the Liverpool job uh, which does seem to breed paranoia. And I, I wonder if that is actually just in the nature of the job that you know the Liverpool job, I think, is is a really pretty difficult one. Um, not not necessarily specific of, of now, but but just generally that you have this great club, the most successful English club, yeah, for a long, long time, most successful English club in Europe still. And now it just doesn't have resources to, to to compete at that level. And yet, even though it's you know, 25 years since they last won the league, but there's still you know, there's a residue of that expectation remains that, that Anfield still feels like a great team. Liverpool fans still feel like a great club. They still feel they should be challenging. And yet, economically, they, they're just not in a position to do so. And that means that it, it's it's an almost impossible job. Yeah, and it could be. I mean, I know a lot of people would argue that plenty of managers around Europe would love to be in that job. But just on what you said there about there being a paranoia or feeling that everyone's out to get him, he says that to him. He says there's been a frenzy to get me out of here. This is one of the quotes from Rogers. You wrote a really good piece last week, Jonathan, that was picked up by a lot of people about the situation with Rogers at Liverpool. Do you feel like you're part of a frenzy to get him out of there? Well, I, I, I wasn't writing that piece uh, really to, to criticise him. I mean, it's, I know obviously it was slightly critical, but I, I think you know, my, my wider point in writing that piece was to say this, this is a situation that's going to keep repeating because Liverpool have the fifth highest wage bill in the league um, and therefore you expect them to finish fifth. And in Rodgers' three seasons, they finished seventh, second, sixth. Add that up, 15 divided by three is fifth. So he's been inconsistent, but you know the, the, the overall picture is he's exactly par. Um, and I think to, you know, to to if you have the twelfth highest wage bill, it's quite easy to finish eleventh. I don't think that's that difficult. But as you get high up the league, that becomes you know each each gap between positions becomes harder to bridge. So I, I, I'd be inclined to give him the credit for finishing second. What what I was saying was that I think at times he hasn't helped himself by I mean particularly in that season when he did finish second by sort of. You know, he's he's not um, he's not reluctant to blow his own trumpet. He he um, I, I, maybe maybe that's actually a good thing. Maybe that encourages people. Maybe you know you, you need a messianic figure, and he was willing to take that on. But the problem is when things start to go wrong, it's very difficult having taken the credit to, to go back and go well. You know, look at the economic situation. What am I meant to do? But he's in this terrible position, which you know a lot of managers find themselves in. That every time he starts to build something, every time they start to get a couple of players who play in really well. Those players leave, and you have to start again. Um, and I think a lot of clubs have found over the last couple of years that there aren't that many great strikers out there. I think most clubs in the Premier League need another striker. 
Uh, and so when you have Luis Suarez and your game plan is based around Luis Suarez and, and, and Sturridge to an extent, and you lose both of them, they're almost impossible to replace. You certainly can't replace them like for like. And you can't even replace them sort of with a B-grade, a B-grade version of them because mm. that sort of player doesn't exist either. So you then have to rip up the whole blueprint and start again. And that that's the process Liverpool went through beginning of last season. And they had a slow start and then hit that 13-game and beaten run. And they're going through that slow start again. Now, maybe Sturridge coming back, beating Villa 3-2 at home is the start of something uh, similar. But I wouldn't be getting too excited after a 3-2 home win against the Villa side who looked pretty vulnerable this season. Yeah, I mean, I take your point about the, the best players leaving. Uh, and that's very difficult for anyone to cope with. Although, I'm struck by how many of those players have directly blamed Brendan Rodgers uh, for why they uh, left. I mean, you've heard from a lot of players um, who have gone out of there that their relationship with Rodgers had, um, you know, hit the rocks. Raheem Sterling most recently. We've got Steven Gerrard explaining how Luis Suarez wasn't prepared to sit in the same room as Brendan Rodgers unless Gerrard was there uh, as a kind of amulet against <laughs> anything Rodgers might say. I mean, Suarez at that time didn't think didn't think Rodgers was being very straight with him. That that much is clear. You know, these these were the key relationships that he had to uh, protect, and it, and it appears as though they they fell apart. Yeah, but I mean, do you really think Luis Suarez would have stayed another year if he'd been Rodgers' best mate? I mean, I don't Suarez know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, if 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 he'd felt uh, if he'd felt his relationships there were better, he he may have. I mean, I, I think Sterling certainly would have. Sterling might have stayed for next year or two. That that's true. But I mean, you you wonder which comes first. Does does the inkling the player is about to leave lead to a fragment of the relationship as Rogers you know starts to try and manipulate things to keep the player there, or does the manipulation come first and force the player out? I mean, I, I think I, 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 I accept with Sterling that you know, they might have got another year or two out of him. I think Suarez was, was going come what may. Um, and again, I think that's just a really awkward position for a manager to be put in. I mean, you, you, I guess you do what you can to try and keep the player there, and maybe he's handled it clumsily. Maybe this, you know, this, this issue of tone, which we, you know, we talked about, the sort of the, the gleam of snake oil that's on everything Rogers does, which I, I think is unfortunate and probably not necessarily representative, but it is there. You do sort of pick it up, and I think that's why a lot of people don't don't warm to him. Uh, that probably makes those negotiations harder, but I, I still think essentially Suarez and Sterling leaving has been because they felt they were betting themselves by going to clubs who were going to pay them more money. Uh, on the question of resources, I mean, Liverpool do have a, uh, a wage bill, which is you know the same size as Bayern Munich's. And somehow don't seem to be able to, uh, some somehow don't seem to be able to put that kind of uh, team out in the field. I mean, there are a few. There, there are some interesting quotes uh, again just over the weekend from Brendan Rodgers, where he's saying, um, "Give me the tools and I'll do the work." And when he says that line, I mean, everybody. There's another line. There's another proverb which uses some of those words. <laughs> <laughs> which everybody immediately thinks of when they hear Brendan Rodgers say that. But, I mean, the fact is he has he has got quite a few uh, good players, uh, or at least he's got the resources to attract the good players. I mean, we know he says the club signs players. I'm happy to work with whoever the club signs. The implication seems to be the club is signing these players, not me. He doesn't seem to be bringing too much to the table, though. In terms, of, He is on that transfer committee. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I haven't really seen any evidence that he's got a lot of good ideas, which he, which um, you know, would change things if only the club would listen. Well, possibly. I mean, I think the comparison with Bayern Munich is a little bit unfair because Bayern Munich don't have four sides in the, in the same country with with more money than them. They don't have the the outside perception of, of being incredibly rich, and and therefore the the premium that Premier, Premier League clubs end up paying for players. Uh, they also have the advantage of, of just being Bayern Munich. So if you're a German kid growing up, that's the biggest club. That's the one you want to play for. And I, I suspect very few English players grow up now. I mean, probably in Liverpool area they do. But outside of Liverpool, I, I suspect most of them don't dream of playing for Liverpool. They dream still of playing for Manchester United or of uh, of going to London. Um, I mean, I think that's a, a really... I'm slightly... Uh, Moving off a point here, but I think there is a. I mean, something Gary Neville touched on in, in his column at the weekend, um, and Hugh McIverney spoke about in his column in the Sunday Times. But I, I was at Watford Palace yesterday, and that's the first time those two teams have, have ever met in the top division. The 77th league meeting, the first time I've ever met in the top division. And that, I think, is indicative of the gradual shift in focus in English football towards London. That even the peripheral London clubs, or clubs on London's periphery, are benefiting from that London factor. 
Uh, and that's something Liverpool are fighting against as well at the moment. So I, 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 I'm not sure you can blame Rodgers for, for the transfer policy. I mean, yeah, they have bought in a load of players who haven't settled, who haven't worked. But I think they're forced into that by, by economic factors. They have to take risks. They have to gamble. Um, and some of them will come off, but a lot of them won't because you know that, that's you know, they're not buying top grade; they're buying B grade, and, and that's the risk inherent in B grade players. Um, just the, the final point: I mean, if if there is maybe a sympathetic point to Rogers, is there maybe a, a sense? Of, I mean, remember when Rogers said all these things, which sound maybe like a, a man fulminating against in, invisible enemies? He is a guy talking after a three-two win, uh, which has seen one of his players score a couple of great goals. And as he pointed out, we've lost fewer games than Arsenal, Chelsea, and Man City this season. So you know, if you were to if you were to look at it in a very optimistic way, they're actually not doing too badly at all. Uh, and yet he finds himself under pressure. Is there a kind of a structural need uh, in the in the Premier League or in the media that covers the Premier League to have at least two or three of these big clubs in crisis at any one moment? Yeah, absolutely, there is. I mean, that, that's the, the soap opera of the modern Premier League. It's part of the reason it's so popular is that that you know it, it throws up discussion points every week and, and um, struggling clubs, struggling managers is he going to be sacked. It's part of that, and I, you know I, I think I mean you know, it's a point I made in the, the, the piece last week that if you look at uh, Matt Busby's first five years at Manchester United, they finished second four times and fourth once. Now, if a manager did that today, you'd say, "Oh, well, he hasn't got the edge to take them over, take them over the line." But back then, I mean, okay, it's, it's it's a very different scenario coming back, taking over a club immediately after the Second World War. But you know, you wouldn't get away with that today. You couldn't finish second four times, and well, maybe Arsenal Wenger could, but any club apart from Arsenal, you couldn't you couldn't have that record of getting so close and just failing because the narrative would have, would demand that that uh, there was a sacrifice to try and make that further leap. Uh, you look at you know a lot of the great managers. I mean, Herbert Chapman took five years to win anything at Arsenal. Um, Clough's first season at Derby, his first season at Forest, they finished you know, mid-table in the second flight. Uh, Reavy, I think, took three years to get promoted with Leeds. You know, th- there was a patience that existed in English football, uh, yeah, twenty years ago and, and and before that that isn't there anymore. I mean, I think if Rodgers were a manager in the early eighties. We're in a similar situation. I don't think anybody would be be that 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 worried by how how things were going. But yeah, in in the modern age, you 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 need these discussions. And, and there's, I think you know the point that Alex Ferguson made about reality TV is, has created this um, yeah this paradigm where yeah we get to vote somebody off every week, and, and people are always waiting for the the next manager to go. Um, and so yeah, Liverpool have a slow start. People start to question that, and yeah, okay, they have lost fewer games than, than the other teams you listed. But who have they actually beaten in that time? They've beaten the teams who have 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th in the Premier League, and 12th in the Championship. So it's not like they've beaten great sides either. So you can read those stats both ways. But five points off the top is not disastrous yet, and I think they probably will get better. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. Yeah, I just to go back to the point about Suarez. I'm not really sure what more Rodgers could have done there. In fact, he got one more season out of Suarez than maybe some managers might Gerard have. Gerard did, apparently. It, it would, how much credit is Gerard taking for that? All of it. What, what exactly did Gerard say to? Uh, basically, Gerard says um, Suarez has completely fallen out with Rodgers, refusing to speak to him, says he's, says he's lied to him, says the club's lying to me, the manager li- is lying to me. That <clears throat> has done that interview with Sid Lowe, saying, why, why does everybody keep lying to me all the time? Uh, I just don't understand why everyone has to be a liar about everything. <laughs> so it's Luis Suarez. But uh, it's the one thing I can't take. It's the one thing I hate is lies. And uh, anyway, Gerard is is there trying to eat a plate of salmon and pasta prepared lovingly for him by his wife. But it goes cold on the table. He's pushing He pushes it away. She says, is there something wrong with it? He says, no, uh, no, Alex. It's just that Luis Suarez is going to leave and we're going to be in mid-table. <laughs> no, this is terrible. Like, remember Gus Poyet said that and everyone was like, oh, Poyet, how dare you say that about us? I think Rogers was kind of like, oh, you can't say that about us. That's exactly what Stephen Jared thought. If he goes, we're in mid-table. <laughs> but, um, so he texted Suarez and said, listen, uh, we've got to sort this out. What's, what's happening here? This is crazy. We have to come and, and, and Suarez is like, mm, yeah, whatever. And he says, come and meet me in the morning before training at Melwood. And Suarez says, okay. So they both come in early, meet up. And Jared says, look, 
don't go to Arsenal. If you go to Arsenal, you're throwing your career away. Arsenal is, you know, the dustbin of history. Forget about Arsenal. If I was in, if I was in, I mean, what about Barcelona and Real Madrid? Are they not interested? And he's like, well, you know, Real Madrid have signed Bale, are going to sign Bale. Barcelona have signed Neymar there. You know, I mean, it's kind of, it's hard to see. They're not ready to sign me this year. And he's like, they'll sign you next year. And he goes, well, what if they don't come back? He says, they definitely will come back. But if you join Arsenal now, you're going to be stuck at Arsenal. You won't be able to get out of there next year. So it's, it would be a disaster for you. Don't go, don't go there now. Stay here. Then go there next year. You know, if, if you play well, they'll definitely be back. So Suarez is kind of like, hmm, okay. I mean, it's, yeah, I can kind of, I mean, yeah, I don't want to join Arsenal either, to be fair. And, uh, so Jared then gets in touch with Rogers and he says, you know, I think we might have something to work with here. You know, I think he, he actually maybe will will stay. Um, so Rogers then tries to arrange a meeting with Suarez. Suarez says, I will not go to a meeting with you unless Stephen Jared is also there. <laughs> because he's had a couple of meetings and it seems like he is, he's... In, he has a certain understanding of how the meeting went and it maybe yeah, doesn't turn out to... Lost in translation or whatever. So he just wants someone, something there. So anyway, they, they managed to agree on that uh, that deal. But... It seems that, that it was brokered by uh, Jared because um, Suarez had stopped talking to Rogers at that point. All right, Leo Messi is out for a couple of months, uh, an eight-week knee injury that looks like the recuperation period. Dermot Cargan has been uh, been watching proceedings over there. Dermot, it seems like when people talk about this in terms of Barcelona, it uh, is, I suppose, a disastrous injury. I don't really like using those kind of words. It's just a guy out for a couple of months, a few weeks. But uh, knee ligaments, we hear. How did it actually happen? It happened early on in the game at the camp now on Saturday against uh, they were playing at home against Las Palmas and he cut inside as he often does from the, the right wing and went for a shot and he kind of jarred his foot. The defender came across and, and got his got his foot down just as he was shooting. So Messi came in and shot into him, which meant that kind of you could see the, the impact going up through his leg. So he played on for a couple of minutes afterwards. He seemed to be okay in trying to run it off, but it pretty soon became obvious that he had a problem. And he, he headed off to the hospital and it turned out that he has a torn ligament in his knee and he's going to be out for about two months. Dermot, what's the reaction in Barcelona been to this? I mean, it's it's his first serious injury for, I think, two years. Um, and it's a big, it's a pity because he'd been doing so well and looking so fit. But are they kind of saying, well, it's OK, we've got we've got other good players who can come in. Or is everybody a little worried about what's going to happen now that Messi's gone? Yeah, more the second part of, of that question, I'd say. People went into a bit of shock when it happened. As soon as they saw him going off, weren't even that worried about the game. Barca fans and pundits had start. We're all worried what's going to happen to Messi. What's the story of Messi? Is he coming back? Not even that worried about the three points. Heard some of the people on on the radio, the Catalan guys, who were saying that they'd much rather have have lost the game and for Messi to continue because he's just such a, a talismanic figure for the team. Everything goes through him. He's he's much more important even than, than Luis Enrique or anybody else. So. From a, a, a feelings point of view and a sensations point of view, everybody's pretty down at the camp. Now, even though the games that they have over the next couple of months aren't particularly difficult, it looks like he'll be back for the, the classical, but it's more just a, a feeling, a sensation around the club that they're in trouble. Uh, from, from his own point of view, I would have thought Lionel Messi was thinking he was fairly nailed on to win the Ballon d'Or in January. Not that anybody cares about these baubles, <laughs> but he definitely, I would have thought, would have, would have reckoned he was a favourite for that. Does it open it up now a little bit, maybe to a couple of his teammates, if they have a red-hot October and November? I mean, it was good enough for Cristiano Ronaldo to win it in, in 2013, 2014. So, um, Who are you talking about here? Luis Suarez, specifically. Yeah, I, I don't know. Ronaldo's goals definitely helped him. Like The timing of Ronaldo's goals over the last two years, when he's, the first year was against, he scored those goals against Sweden. There was the big controversy about the vote. And then last year, he was banging them in, helped him. This year, it's hard to see. Neymar had a brilliant Champions League. like He scored in all of the knockout games. Suarez did brilliant as well. But, but I don't think so. The, the way the Ballon d'Or works as well with the, the sponsors getting involved in the media campaigns and stuff, I'd be surprised if Barca started trying to push for any of their other players, considering how, mess, how sensitive Messi is about things. I'd be surprised. But you never know. If Neymar suddenly scores a load of goals, Suarez scores a load of goals, they definitely have a good chance of getting onto the podium for sure. When a massive player leaves a club, you sometimes hear this retrospective... Uh, argument, Roy Keane would be an example, or even Robin Van Persie when he left Arsenal. I remember they scored a load of goals early that season and Wenger said something along the lines of, well, you know, it's it's just opened up, it's given, it's let the other players take the responsibility. Maybe we were putting too much responsibility on the shoulders of our main man. If you're optimistic as a Barcelona fan, surely you will be hoping that, um, that this would lead to one or two other players maybe taking more responsibility. 
Yeah, it's true. The last time Messi was out for, for a couple of months, two years ago, Neymar did pretty well, stepped up and scored a couple of hat-tricks um, in, in games and did pretty well. That was when he really settled in at the club when Messi wasn't there. It, it helped him maybe to, to establish himself. Luis Enrique said after the game, we'll see what type of wood the team are made of, you know, and see whether other players step up. And Suarez did score two very good goals at the weekend to get them out of trouble. It is a big ask. We saw it at the Calderon a few weeks ago when Messi was just after having his son had been born the day before and he hadn't been to training. Barca played the game. It was one all. Neymar scored a brilliant free kick, but it was still everybody was kind of looking over to the bench, waiting on Messi to come on. And then Messi did come on and made a huge difference, stepped them up and they won the game. I guess Barca fans will be hoping that people will step up and do it. But it's uh, just because Messi's so big and because he dominates everything so much, it's a difficult one. Um there, there has been another thing that happened in the last couple of days, and this is very much off-field, but it's it's of a piece with some other things that have happened at Barcelona in recent times, which is that a court in Brazil froze €40 million Euros worth of assets belonging to Neymar um, because apparently there are some tax issues which they're not happy with. Now, the, he's obviously not the first um, superstar Barcelona forward to have issues with tax compliance. What is happening there with these? Is they, are they beginning to recognise that they've got a little bit of a problem here uh, with the way in which they, with their, their financial relationship with uh, some of their top players? This has got to be an unsettling thing for Neymar. He, he might need to, to make a big signing on fee somehow. He might need to, to make a bit of money somehow. And when, when Lionel Messi had this same issue, which isn't resolved yet, by the way, um, that was a massively unsettling uh, thing to happen in, in terms of his relationship with the club. So what are Barcelona thinking about this? Yeah, Barca's reaction to most of those things is to say that is to, to play the victim and say we're being unfairly targeted by the tax authorities in Madrid and you know anything that goes wrong at Barcelona These are the tax wrong. authorities in Sao Paulo though. Yeah, it's, it's true that the stuff seems to be going back to when he was playing at Santos. According to the reports I was reading, he doesn't actually own anything in in Brazil, Neymar. All, the, all of the things that are put into his family's name, into other people's name into companies' names, so he thinks he's he's safe enough the way it's been structured. The, what we saw when he was in trouble before, when there was stuff about his dad that he came out and made some very emotional type comments about you know how he'd stick up for his dad. His dad would always, his dad had helped him, and he'd always be there for his dad. It was the most important thing for him. But he still kept scoring loads of goals. I, I don't know. The, the team seemed to insulate themselves pretty well. Like the players at Barca, I, I wonder what they think about the. The, the directors at the club or anybody else around the club, they, they don't seem to have that much respect for them. But they, they use it in the dressing room and, and they keep playing well. don't know if it affected Messi that badly and, and I don't know if it'll affect Neymar too much. Dermot, just a word on Real Madrid before we go. The second nil-nil draw, home draw of the season um, to Malaga. Now, they only had, I think, two nil-alls in the entirety of last season. So I'm sure some of the fans might be a little disgruntled there. Although defensively, they have only let in one goal. Um, maybe they're they're... So they're, they're getting Rafa Benitez as advertised there so far? Yeah, pretty much. It's a pretty typical Rafa thing to do. Like They went to 1-1 at, at Atlantic Bilbao during the week and Rafa was talking about how great the team had played tactically, how understood his instructions. They played four different systems. Then they come at the weekend against Malga and they've a uh, first time in 56 games that, that Madrid hadn't scored at the Bernabeu. They had over 30 shots. Ronaldo had 14 shots and they couldn't find a way through. And it wasn't that they were the keeper had an amazing game or they kept it in the post or whatever. A lot of the shots were kind of easily blocked or, or shots from tight angles and stuff. And it just looked like they were having trouble breaking them down. Rafa blamed the players. He said that, you know, he set the team up well, that they picked an attacking team. It was up to them to take their chances. But they, there is a feeling that that's what you get with, with Rafa is lots of tactical instructions, but you don't get the free-flowing attacking football that, that breaks down teams at home. And at the Bernabeu, there was already grumbles about 15 minutes into the game about the team not playing well enough, exciting enough. And it does look as if it's set up for, for yeah, some interesting times for, for Rafa to see how he deals w- with those type of expectations. I think it's, I think it's absolutely hilarious, uh, the, the Bernabeu. Like, I mean, what, do, what exactly do they want in a manager? I mean, I'm, I'm asking that as a serious question. What kind of man ought the manager of Real Madrid be? I mean, what what, uh, what's, what are the qualities? Does he have to be a handsome guy? Does he have to be a charismatic charmer? Um, should he should he crack jokes? Uh, I mean, is it important? It's not important just to score in every home game or something like that, because Carlo Ancelotti did that and they, they got rid of him. Um, you know, there's this whole thing with Rafael Benitez and uh, does he love Cristiano Ronaldo enough, which is this 
soap opera element. You can just imagine what Rafael Benitez thinks about that, kind of reflecting the previous issues that he had with Stephen Gerrard, at least issues yeah. in, as far as Gerrard was concerned. Um, but whether Rafael likes it or not, that sort of thing can become a, a problem for him over time. People go, well, look, he doesn't love Ronaldo. No wonder Ronaldo never scores. It's no point Rafa saying, well, you know, actually, if you look at Ronaldo, he barely ever moves anymore. Um, you know, he's not quite the same player. He's well. There's no point in saying that. People are going to say he doesn't. You don't love Ronaldo enough. You're not the right type of man to be the manager of Real Madrid. I mean, what are they actually looking for there? They want to be about five nil up at halftime in every game and to enjoy like twisting teams and, and breaking teams apart and humiliating teams. That that's pretty much the only time the Bernabeu is really happy after a game is when they've done that to, to their opponents. All right, Dermot Cargan, brilliant stuff. We'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> quite a good explanation of what the Real Madrid fans want, Ken. Sometimes watching Spanish football, I've said this before in the podcast, it leaves me a little bit cold when Barcelona and Spain are, Barcelona and Real Madrid are winning these games 4-5-6-0. Yeah. I, I love it when there's a bit of a challenge and you see them caught in one of these tight ones and Messi or Ronaldo pulls it out. That's, that's brilliant. That's what it's there for. But the 5-0s leave me a little cold. Apparently I wouldn't be welcome at the Bernabeu. So they... They don't mind the five nil slaughterings even by halftime. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I, I find that kind of thing boring. Uh, it's like, well, here, here's Real Madrid beating up on a team that whose budget is less than Ronaldo's salary. Mm-hmm. Like this is just rubbish. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why? Why would anyone? Why would anyone be interested in that? Um, but I suppose if you if you assiduously ignore all of the reasons why Real Madrid are actually bullying, why why this is a totally unfair fight, and Real Madrid are actually bullying this other team uh, that shouldn't really doesn't really deserve to be on the same page as them. And then you go, well, it's amazing. Once again, we've won 6-0. Mm-hmm. This really is mm-hmm. one of the best teams ever. But I suppose um, bullfighting is still popular in Madrid. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are people who might say that was an unfair fight in some ways, you know, an armed man against a dumb animal. Uh, but uh, but I suppose it's all a question of taste, you know. It's yeah. a question. It's a question of how you do it, and if you if you manage to do it to carry it off with a certain amount of style, then maybe uh, the unfairness of it can be overlooked. All right, Murph, I must say, is transfixed over there with his Henry Sheffield autobiography. He's bursting to get this second podcast out today. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant book, by the way, uh, Sheffield. Uh, really, really impressed by. It. You sometimes sometimes worry with the the bigger the star somebody is in sport in a country the the more you worry that they're going to be concerned about offending people or giving too much of themselves all these general sort of cliches you hear but he doesn't seem to be he he gives a lot of himself in it and it's really well told by Vincent Hogan who's the ghostwriter really well put together so really looking forward to speaking to Henry Shefflin he's going to be in studio we'll have that out for you today that's Monday afternoon so make sure to have a listen we'll also be talking to Jerry Thorny and Shane Horgan about the Six Nations weekend notably Ireland's comfortable victory against Romania and the ridiculous game between Wales and England but that's it for the football podcast thanks again thank you Owen. thanks very much for listening we'll talk to you later today That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 